Amen. Um, you can be seated. We'll dismiss our kindergarten and first graders. Go back with Miss Robin back there, kindergarten and first grade. Headed back to Miss Robin. And I'd invite the rest of you, if you have a Bible with you or some sort of app, um, that you would open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. We're going to start the book of uh, Exodus today, and I hope to do it in about 20 to 25 weeks. Um, which uh, someone has already commented, man, that's a long time to be in Exodus. And I said, well, you know, the children of Israel were in the desert for 40 years. We're not going to stay that long there. Um, And uh, so much of our story is found uh, as we look through uh, the book of Exodus. And so uh, I hope we can draw some things out that will be quite meaningful to you and um, encourage you in, in your faith. On uh, August the 10th, 2002, Ash and I stood on an altar in a church just up the road and made some vows to each other and to God that we would uh, love and care for each other for the rest of our lives. I think I have a little picture uh, from way back then. You can see how you, I didn't show you a full picture of me because you would say, man, you were so skinny then. Um, it feels like we were just babies. But that promise was just another in a long line of others who had done the same because the Christian ideal of marriage is the highest ideal that there is because it's not just a contract between two people, it's a covenant. Paul would later describe to the church at Ephesus that marriage is mysterious as it symbolizes or illustrates the covenant relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church. And you and I sit here today, those who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, As part of that very promise, the book of Revelation tells us that our relationship with God will one day culminate in this wedding feast called the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we look with anticipation toward that day. But our relationship with God didn't start with Jesus, him being uh, born as we celebrate on Christmas, growing up and dying on a cross. No, our relationship and story goes back much further than that. So far that we're going to jump into the book of Exodus, and I want to give us a little context even before Exodus as we start really with creation. And the kiddos that are left in here, I just want to encourage you, we're going to talk about five uh, specific Bible characters today as we look through, and any of those that kind of pique your interest, if you want to draw a little picture or take a note of those, we're going to look at God's relationship with Adam, uh, God's relationship with Noah, his relationship with Abraham with the whole nation of, uh, with Joseph and the whole nation of Israel, with David, and then certainly with, uh, with Jesus. <clears throat> Exodus, to give you a little context, is the second book of the Torah, the Pentateuch, meaning five books. And although it's a separate book, most of those that have read this before us would have experienced this whole thing as one book. So Exodus would have been the second chapter in the, uh, in the book or collection of works called the Pentateuch. That's why Exodus, um, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy all start with a conjunction saying, and as it continues, they go on with the story. Exodus means exiting or departure, but we can't really even begin to understand Exodus without first knowing what we departed from. As most of you know, it goes back to the beginning, right? Our story begins in creation, 
It's there that God created humans in his image to be in relationship with him and to act as partners to him, to help spread goodness and his likeness throughout the world. Even the song we just sang about God's glory, how we would want to extend God's glory, that this is where we're asking God for his presence so that his presence would be uh, with us and in us and around us and manifest, uh, manifested around us so that his glory would be known through the rest of the earth. That idea came from Genesis as God made man in his likeness, that we are image bearers, that we are glory carriers. Paul would go through and explain that as we've been transformed even increasingly so into the likeness of Jesus, that we are a display case of grace, that as we walk, we are living testimonies living movies, living metaphors, gospel metaphors to the watching world of how we've been changed by the grace of God and in turn we reflect his glory. It says, in the beginning God created. And he didn't create just because he got bored one day. You and I were created to live in this familial relationship with God. And not to ruin the surprise for you as if you didn't know, we've never been very good at living up to our end of the deal. Every one of these covenant, this uh, these agreements between two parties, God promising this and we in turn promising something else that we have never really lived up to our end of the deal. We often break the covenant, but that doesn't stop God. He just continues to love us well, even in the midst of our sin. In total, there's five Old Testament covenants. The first one with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Israelites, and King David. All of these serve as a purpose of creating this new partnership in which God can eventually invite all humankind. Unfortunately, Israel eventually breaks these covenants with God again and again, and God comes to renew the covenant and to give another covenant, to extend the covenant as he explains it. The first one with Adam is found, and we don't have time to look at all these passages, but in Genesis 3, as the result of Adam's sin, the following curses and promises were pronounced that there would be enmity between Satan and Eve and her descendants, <clears throat> excuse me, painful childbirth for women, it'd be marital strife, the soul would be cursed, the introduction of thorns and thistles, survival would now be a struggle, death would be introduced and would be the inescapable fate <clears throat> of all living things. <clears throat> and although these curses are severe and inescapable, a wonderful promise was also given. This is what some theologians refer to as the first gospel or the proto-gospel. Speaking to Satan, God says in verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall <clears throat> bruise him on the heel, speaking of Christ. Here God promises that one day, born of a woman would be, a man born of a woman would be wounded in the process of destroying Satan. That seed, that promised seed, the woman who would crush the serpent's head is none other than Christ. Galatians 4, 1 John 3, 8 talks about this. Even in the midst of the curse, we see God's gracious provision, his covenant of promise that he is going to restore all things that have been broken. I've told you many times that the Jesus Storybook Bible is one of our favorite theological pieces in our home. I want to read you a part of this, and I hope you don't think this is too childish. I love how it points to Jesus again and again. This is um, in the story of Adam and Eve and the curse. It reads, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children. 
with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And although they would forget him and run from him deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always and long for him, lost children yearning for their home. Before they left the garden, God whispered a promise to Adam and Eve, it will not always be so, I will come to rescue you, and when I do, I'm going to do battle against the snake. I'll get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness you let in here, I'm coming back for you. After the garden, things take a tragic turn. Sin seems to overtake everything. It was a very dark time. And then comes Noah. God is going to make a covenant with Noah. God is going to deal with the rampant sin. He's going to save a remnant of people who will continue in this line of redemption and relationship with God, reflecting his glory around the world. After purging the world of this Rampant evil, all the while inviting them into salvation, which they reject. God makes a new covenant with Noah and all creation, opening up a new future for God's good world based upon his promises. And remember, he gives them a sign of promise in the rainbow. And God promises that despite humanity's continued tendency towards selfishness and sin, he's not going to destroy the world like that ever again. Rather, the earth will become a reliable place where God will work out his purposes to rescue everyone and everything. Now, not to lose you, but this is part of our story. And you think your salvation story starts with some sort of conversion experience, and that's maybe when you were made more aware of it, but your story goes way back even to the beginning as part of God's people. The next covenant is with Abraham. Maybe you're familiar with this one. This is one we talked about even a few weeks ago as quoted in the prophet Hosea. First Peter 2 repeats it. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Remember, we were created for relationship with God to reflect his glory to the world. And God wanted to redeem the world, reclaim creation from the curse of sin that Adam and Eve had let in, and fill the earth with God's glory. So God zeroes in on one man, Abram, a worshiper of false gods, Joshua 24 tells us, he's living in the land of Ur and says with unbelievably far-reaching implications in Genesis 12, I think I have this on the screen, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and him who curses you I will curse And in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God comes to this undeserving idolater and says with this life-creating authority, I'm going to bless you and through you bring a blessing to the world. As you know, we've been reading through in our Bible reading plan, the book of Genesis. We're creeping into Exodus. And this is one of the first times... uh, uh, my kids have been reading with us, and one of them came to me uh, last week or week before last after reading through Genesis and says, Dad, there's some really weird things in here. And maybe you catch that too, as you see, as God chooses these people, even Abram. And he doesn't choose the people who, um, who are just killing it in life. As a matter of fact, he seems to choose the people who no one else would ever choose. 
The people that if we were God and we were in control and we were looking for a certain characteristic and uh, smooth with words and people of great integrity, those are the people that we would call in to be part of this. I mean, this is the, this is the process of redemption that's starting thousands of years ago and moving forward. We got to get the best people on the bus if we're going to make this thing really work. And God says, you know, what? I'm really worried about that because it's not even about them. This is about something that I'm going to do through them. And so as you read through Genesis and you see one failure after another and you see God's redemptive work, you aren't shouting the praises of Abraham or Judah or even as we look in, uh, of Moses as we come to this. This is something God's doing. Now the one thing we can say of Abram is that he does follow God. He journeys for about five years away from his home and then God officially makes this covenant in Genesis 15. <clears throat> Abram is trying to figure out how God's actually going to make a great nation of him when he has no children. Only a distant cousin, I think, he calls Eleazar in verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look towards heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so, your, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Wish we had time to talk more about that. But the takeaway is that Abram believed God, even though the deck was stacked against him. Abram is at least 70 at this point, with no children. Surely he could have picked some kind of family like the Duggars of the Old Testament to say, I'm going to make a nation. There would be a lot more going on there, right? A lot more possibility. Instead, he chooses Abram and Sarah, who's barren. And immediately, the, they don't get pray Another 25 years. If he's 70, we would think, okay, God, let's get this thing started. Like, okay, he's 70. If we're going to make a nation, we got to get it going. Kind of like the disciples that are coming to Jesus again and again after some kind of large crowd would gather around them and Jesus would give this really offensive message and they would all leave. And the disciples would kind of converse with Jesus like, Jesus, hey man, you don't get it. That's not how this thing works. Jesus knowing, hey man, I made the whole thing. I know how it works. God changes Abram's name to reflect this great covenant with Abraham it becomes and promises that he's going to be the father of many nations. But God doesn't work the way that you and I think he should. Sarah didn't start just having tons of babies. As one commentator said, Abraham would later die with one legitimate son and a handful of promises. This covenant would be renewed with Abraham's son Isaac and with his son Jacob and then with Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph. He's who we see in the opening pages uh, of Exodus. If you read those with me in Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel. That's Jacob. Jacob and Israel are synonymous names. Who came to Egypt with Jacob and with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. 
They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel too many and too mighty for us. To co- for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. It would seem that God was not fulfilling the, this promise to Abraham. But God is indeed at work. God's ways are always sel- or seldom our ways. And it was indeed his plan to carry his covenant people through the miseries of Egypt toward the promised land. And this was not some bait and switch either. God told Abraham that this season of slavery was coming, that oppression would have to happen in Genesis 15 verse 13. God was at work even if the people of Israel could not see it. And here we see them being oppressed. And it's only going to get worse in the coming weeks. This oppression is going to build and build for uh, the next several chapters. But God's covenant would continue. God would make a covenant with these families, with the Israelites. And this is one we'll talk about a lot as we walk through the book of Exodus. After a long, dark night of Israel's soul, 400 years of it, dawn would finally break. God calls Moses, and with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, God liberates his people from bondage. This is what we see looking forward. They're going to cross the Red Sea on dry ground. They're going to receive food from the sky and water from the rocks. And in three months, they're going to arrive at Mount Sinai. And this is where we see God make the covenant with his people Israel. He makes a solemn covenant with Israel to confirm and strengthen the covenant that he had made long ago with Abraham. Eventually would come a covenant through the line of David. God establishes David as king over Israel and promises that the promises to Abraham and Israel will be fulfilled in his royal lineage. And so as we kind of move into this book, I want to remind us of a few things and I want To remind you in a way that we look back and we look forward. We look at how God has worked in the past and how God is working in our life and how God promises to work in the future. One is that God keeps his promises. Over and over again, God keeps his promises. He's proven himself faithful. This is not a generic reminder either. God is faithful. If we see anything from God's promise to Abraham, it's that he's going to keep his promises, even when it's hard to see him working in the moment. We're introduced to Joseph here again, and the book of Genesis would close with Joseph. You could, if you have a Bible, just flip over. This is not on the screen. You remember the story of Joseph, right? That Joseph was the arrogant... He was really kind of a brat of a little kid, and he had dad's favor, and he had, even if that wasn't enough, just because of his favor, he had the coat of many colors, and he would have these visions, I mean, this kind of stacked up one on another, and he would remind his brothers and eventually his parents about it, that, you know, I've had these visions that they're going to bow down to me, and uh, the brothers started to despise him, and then he had another one that his parents were going to 
bow down to him. And so his brothers concocted this plan, right, to sell Joseph into slavery. They were debating killing him. Then the caravan to Egypt showed up. They sold him, made a little money on him. And then Joseph kind of disappears from their purview. All the while, we know that God is working through Joseph, that he gets put in prison. Uh, He spends a lot of time there. There's a couple people in there that have visions, and Joseph says, I can interpret those, and he does. If you remember to tell Pharaoh about me and get me out of this prison, you remember the story. They forget him. Another several years pass, Pharaoh has a dream. He doesn't know. Remember the skinny cows and the fat cows and the whole kind of thing in the dream? And finally, the guy says, you know what? There is someone that I was with in prison, Joseph, and uh, he interprets dreams. And so the Pharaoh brings Joseph up, and he begins to interpret the dreams of seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And so Pharaoh right then says, hey, someone that bright and articulate, let me put you in charge of all of that. And so Joseph takes charge, second only to Pharaoh, of storing up in the the seven years of feasting, of abundance. And he would save up knowing that the seven years of famine would come. And when they did come, everyone would have to come to Egypt to get rations. And there was Joseph in charge of all of those things. And because of that, they were giving the land of Goshen, Joseph and his family, to live. It was a premium spot, close to where Cairo is today. And that takes us to the very end. In verse 22, so Joseph remained of... of, of, of Genesis 50. So Joseph remained in Egypt and in his father's house, and he lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, and the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of the land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's the covenant promise again that Joseph is saying, you've got to remember the covenant that God has made with us, the relationship that God has promised us. This is part of who we are. The reminder for us is that God keeps his promises. And certainly that would be hard to see. The second thing I want to remind us of is that God rarely acts according to the timetable that we expect him to. Abraham waited 30 years from God's first promise to see his first son born. And then only part of the dream was fulfilled. It would take more than 400 years before they would finally have the promised land and be able to move in as sojourners, no longer being sojourners. But all the while, there was a scarlet thread of redemption being woven through all of their story and our story. When they thought God was absent, he was really there. When they thought that he had forgotten them, there he was next to them, working mostly behind the scenes, weaving this thread of redemption and restoration through their story and through our story. So what do we do? How do we respond to all of this? We understand that part of our story goes way back to the beginning. And God has been working And he's been acting and he's been shifting things around so that we would be sitting here some thousands of years later in a a gymnasium 
hearing the good news of the gospel preached again and again. How do we respond to such news? First, I just wanted to want to give you two things. The first of those is to be faithful in what we can do. Be faithful in what you can do. You're not in control of everything. Actually, to be real honest, we're not in control of hardly anything. But we can rest knowing that God is in control of everything and he's working things out for our good. Be faithful in what you can do. Work hard, live with integrity, invest your life into other people, raise your kiddos to love and fear God. Be faithful in what you can do. Wake up every day with the prayer of John the Baptist that I must increase so that Jesus must, in, I must decrease so Jesus must increase. Every day comes with another news cycle reminding us of the world that we live in, that it's increasingly fallen and evil is on the rise everywhere. And we can't change all of that. But we can be faithful in what we can do. It's pretty miraculous. As we look at Exodus 1 and we see that there's about 75 people, that's including Joseph and his family, who are in Egypt. And then in verse 7 it says, The people of Israel were fruitful and they increased greatly and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Moses would have written the book of Exodus and the first group of people that would have read this writing, this part of God's story, Genesis then to Exodus, would have been the second generation that had left out of there. And they were connecting the dots between these very things that even we are thinking about today. God's story and thread of redemption woven through all of history. If the church is faithful in the midst of a fallen world, I think we are in store for a unique blessing from God. Maybe it's a smaller, leaner church. Probably will be, but it may very well be a stronger church. At the same time, if the church is faithful, I think we can expect some bitter circumstances. Perhaps it'll be in other places sooner than here. Perhaps it'll be here in a few years or many, I don't know. But I do think that we're going to see both. There are going to be temptations for us to choose the easy way, to water down the scripture, as is a common practice even in the West, to not talk about the hard and difficult things. Let's remove this idea of sin and offense from God. Let's remove these ideas of the blood of Jesus that was required as a sacrifice on our behalf. If we can kind of cleanse our Bible of these things, then maybe, maybe it'll be more palatable to other people. But in doing so, we step outside of God's divine blessing. We see that Israel grew because of God's blessing. Even and as, as, as Pharaoh seemed to kind of press harder, they grew all the more. It says again in verse 7, they were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. Remember, this was the promise that were, was given to really every one of the patriarchs as we look at them. Started with Adam and then Noah as God restored the land, and then Abraham, I'm going to build this great nation, and that covenant extended to Isaac, and then to Jacob, then to Joseph, 
and then to these very people. The world thinks perhaps if we can be less faithful, we'll avoid these bitter circumstances, and that may work, but in doing so, you'll avoid the blessing of God. The two go hand in hand. The second quick part of application is that we should trust no matter what. Trust no matter what. Trust that the hardest part of your story is not the end of God's story for you. Things are going to get pretty bad for God's people. They're going to be beaten, infanticide, had to make bricks without straw. But that's just setting them up for what God is going to do. It's going to be so sweet when he gets them out. Now, they didn't know that. They lived as slaves for 400 years, a lot longer than even our country's been around. Can you even imagine that there were generation after generation after generation who knew nothing but slavery? They, as far as they've known, they had always been slaves and oppressed by Egypt. And yet there's these people, the descendants of Joseph, who keep claiming that redemption is coming, restoration is coming. That's a long time to keep believing the promises of God. Some of you have been in difficult seasons. Difficult circumstances, and I don't have to spell them all out, and I don't know what they all are. Maybe it's regarding your family or difficulty raising your kids. Maybe you've got older kids and they're far from God. Maybe you're in the midst of a job that's just miserable. Maybe you don't have a job. Maybe you're in a marriage that's harder than you anticipated, no matter what it is. Financial difficulty, persecution, whatever it is. This is just all part of our story. And if you feel like you're in the midst of these difficult circumstances, will you still believe? Can you believe that God brought you into this mess so that he can bring you out of it for his glory? Church, this is what it means for us, is to be people of faith. Think about that for a moment. People of faith, they don't just praise God when we're on the mountaintop and everything is just great. But people that place our faith and trust in God every step of the way. Hebrews would tell us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. This idea of Faith, again, it's not the amount of faith. Jesus says just the grain of a mustard seed. The faith of a mustard seed can move a mountain. It's not the amount of faith. I always grew up just kind of, you know, clenching my teeth and just wishing I had more faith. But it's the object of your faith. What promises are you really counting on? Are they the promises of God that have been issued thousands of years ago and he has proven himself to be so faithful? But from your vantage point, sometimes all we see is difficulty and darkness. And it's so easy to give up. I find it interesting that even Jesus, as he walked with his disciples, remember as he's warning Peter that he would be sifted like wheat by Satan. And his prayer for Peter was not that he would not go through that. His prayer for Peter was that 
His faith would not fail. And then when he would return, he would strengthen the other believers. He would strengthen his brothers. The point is not that we would just get out of difficulty so quickly. Hey, little newsflash here. And I pray it doesn't happen. But our country is moving at rapid speed toward a very post-Christian society. And we're seeing legislation happen that is just abhorrent. And you're thinking as you watch this, are you thinking as I am, how could that even be possible that they would be passing laws, that they would allow this sort of behavior? And it grips my heart. And you are seeing that the presence of the evil one is very real. And he's at work, as Romans says, blinding the minds of the unbelievers. Their understanding becoming even as darkness. They don't even know, they don't even know where, they're, where they're going or what they're doing. And that's the direction that we too are headed. And unless God does something ridiculously crazy, and he certainly can, and I pray that he does. And there's no promise that even says that as the world gets worse, that God wouldn't save a city or a country that would stand up for what is right and true. But as the world grows more and more post-Christian, your faith is going to look more and more different, alien, so strange that people don't understand it. And you're going to stand out even more and more. And this is the real question, I think, for us. Are we really a people of faith? Have we placed our weight Have we placed our worth? Have we put all of our chips into the center of the table that God is who he says he is and that he's going to do what he said that he would do? Even Psalms 91 that I read just a minute ago, and I've read it multiple times this week. I love this. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. You know, the real question becomes, do you trust in God or do you trust in you? I think that's the question that I deal with all the time. When a problem arises, am I trusting in God or am I trusting in myself? The call is for us to trust in God no matter what. Even when you can't see all the steps. Church, he's not done getting glory through you. Some of you are saying, man, I sure wish he was, but he's not. His story for you is not done. God promised them not only an offspring, but a land. Not only would they grow strong in number, but God had a specific place for them. He was not finished with his covenant with them. And when we begin in Exodus, they're not in that land. They've got to get back. And God has a plan to get them there, but they seem just pretty comfortable in Egypt until the screws begin to be tightened. And remember, even on their journey, what did they say over and over? Man, I sure wish we were back in Egypt. At least when we were back in Egypt, we had soup. That's what they wanted. Bone broth is what they wanted. The problem is, church, and if I could speak to us directly, is blessing can become a distraction. And we can live for the blessings themselves and not the one who bestows those blessings upon us. We can live for the stuff. That's what the people who were following Jesus wanted after he had fed the 5,000 and departed for them. And he met them, you remember? 
they went and found them. And as soon as they found them, they said, man, Jesus, make some more food, man. That was amazing. And again, Jesus gives this statement, you know what? You don't really want me. You just want the stuff that I bring. If you really want to be my disciple, then you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And that would have seemed to them like some sort of weird cannibalism. We know Jesus was pointing to the culmination of this covenant that started way back with Adam, went through Noah and Abraham and the Israelites and even David. It would be culminated in the person of Jesus. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets talked about a day when God would once again come and create a new covenant. One that would completely restore all the broken covenants that came before it. This new covenant was, would be filled by God's son. Even this week, I was called by someone who uh, ended up on our website. And they were asking us about the name covenant. You know, when I named our, we named our little church covenant, I, I was not thinking about uh, I didn't know that there was a, really a, a covenant denomination. If you don't know that, there is one. And people show up at our church thinking that we're part of it. And I'm really not even sure exactly what it is. Um, or they think that uh, we've named it that as part of a uh, covenant theology. Um, there's an association of churches out of the Midwest called Covenant. And all these different people have shown up at different times thinking that we're part of that. We got the name Covenant just because we were reading through the Gospels and Jesus talked so much about the new covenant. That there would be a new covenant. And that's what would identify us as a people is that we were part of this new covenant. Jesus fulfilled all the old covenants. We're told in the Bible he's a descendant of Abraham allowing him to fulfill the covenant God had with Abraham and his family. We're told that Christ is the faithful Israelite who would be able to truly obey all the law and that Christ is the king from the line of David, allowing Christ to fulfill God's covenant with all of these people, but in a more perfect way, thus restoring all the covenants in the Bible. And this way, Christ himself is the New Testament covenant. He's the covenant, a covenant that cannot fail and can't be broken. And Christ has invited people to follow him and join him in this new partnership with God. And despite our failures, the call to us, church, is still the same. That we are people who enter this new covenant thanks to the fact that Christ himself was able to perfectly fill his covenant and commitment to God. Through his perfect keeping of this new covenant, we too are able to enjoy a renewed partnership with God. And this is why we have communion. And this is why that we try to celebrate it even most weeks, that we would be reminded of this new covenant in Luke twenty-two twenty, as Jesus is at the Last Supper. He says, this is the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Every time that we come to the table, we're reminded of this great promise of God. And since the first Passover that we're going to get to in a few chapters, when God spared 
the sons of the Israelites who had placed the blood over their doorpost. That when God comes again and we hear the trumpet sound, that he is going to spare from his wrath all of those who have been covered in the very atoning work and blood of Jesus. At the end of the Bible, we see John describing a new and perfect partnership with God where all the saved work with him to once again spread goodness and perfection throughout the world. And thanks to the fulfillment of the new covenant through Jesus, God's initial plan for mankind would be made complete once again. I want to pray for us, and I want to give you some time to pray yourself. And we're going to invite you here in just a moment to participate and respond in taking communion. And you would be reminded, once again, of the promise that God's made to us and the promise that we've made to him. That he's promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And that he's coming one day to gather up his bride, the church. And what we've promised is that we would place our faith and trust in him. No matter what the world looks like, no matter how bad things get or how good things get, we would live remarkable, distinguished lives of faith. Not that they would be perfect and not that we wouldn't stumble and fall because certainly we would. And when we do, we're reminded that God's covenant with us is unchanging. Let me pray for us. And you come when you're ready as our ushers come forward. Father, thank you for your promise to us. While we were yet sinners, you sent your son to die for us. And promise after promise, these covenants extended through the Old Testament that we see culminated in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, that we are reminded of how worthy you are of our trust. And I pray, Father, for our little church, I pray that we would be people of great faith. Again, not the amount of our faith, but that the object of our faith in your son Jesus, that we would be all in on him. And although the world around us might waver and get darker and darker, there could be a light shining from this very place in Bozier City. And not just when we gather, but from our homes. Lord, there would be little lighthouses and pockets of darkness all over our city. God, I pray that you would continue to do this work in us. As we take communion now, remind us of your goodness to us, that we would proclaim your death until you come again as we eagerly await. In Jesus' name, amen.